Okay, so this is our Simon Don reading group uh, coming back after a couple weeks break. I, my notes from last time say that we're starting on page 163 of the PDF. I hope that's correct, but I, I'm pretty sure it is. Um, so we're still on part four. We're, uh, we're at the section break between B, sections B and C of part four. Um, so C, I think, is fairly long. Uh, he's going to talk about um, technical invention, um, like the specific form of technical invention. Um, so this next part is uh, more connected with his other book, um, on the mode of existence of technical objects that we read uh, a couple years ago now, actually. Um, it's been been a while. Um, but uh, yeah, so what we looked at the last couple of sessions before our break in part B was uh, what Simon Don calls formalization. Uh, in, so he gives us various different types of formalization. So this has to do with the way that um, some sort of implicit knowledge or implicit grasp of a situation uh, of the properties of an object, um, you know, what, what you can do with an object, etc. Um, this sort of implicit grasp of, of all of this gets turned into something explicit. Um, and so like a, a, a sort of um, uh, one of the key instances of this is when uh, some task is supposed to be performed by slaves or servants or some other subordinated person. Um, if you are trying to get um, your subordinate to perform a task, you have to actually um, state explicitly what it is you want them to perform. Uh, you can't just sort of rely on this implicit knowledge. If you're performing a task yourself, you can just sort of know what to do in this implicit way. But then when you tell someone else, okay, do this for me, you have to actually explicitly tell them, you know, how to hold the tool or what sort of movement they have to make or whatever. All the, um, everything that was implicit before has to become explicit or at least a large part of it. Um, so this is an instance of formalization in the sense that the, the knowledge um, is now becoming explicit as opposed to, to implicit. Um, and th so this is a, a sort of a step towards um, uh, invention because now that once this knowledge becomes um, formalized or explicit, uh, then you can sort of operate on it in a way that you couldn't before. So something that is implicit knowledge is a sort of... Um, bodily skill so something like you can think of um uh tying your shoes or or riding a bicycle or whatever these sort of m complex movements that we know how to do but if you had to explain to someone what precise movements of your fingers you had to do to tie your shoes like i would have no idea how to do that um uh um so uh once once you do formalize some sort of knowledge uh of uh how to perform an operation you can sort of operate on uh, that formalized knowledge, it becomes that, that knowledge becomes something, uh, a, a sort of object in its own right. So you can you can take that knowledge and you can see, OK, what would happen if instead of doing operation A, we did operation B um, while while performing this complex uh, series of operations? Uh, maybe if you substitute B for A, you get a, a slightly different result. Maybe it's a little bit better. Um, or maybe it gives uh, something that works better in a certain situation or something like that. Um, so you can, uh, by operating on your formalized knowledge, your explicit knowledge, you um, now have a capacity to modify um, your set of operations. Um, and, and this is a, a kind of invention. Um, even if it's a, a you know, to start with, it might be a very limited form of invention. It's just a, a sort of a slight modification. Um, but uh, the more... Of, of this formalized knowledge that you have available to you, the more you can sort of um, plug these pieces of knowledge into each other and then produce something new. So um, 
Simondon talks about the invention of the airplane. Uh, and um, uh, so this sort of um, the production of a flying device uh, is something that uh, uh, human beings in various civilizations have um, sort of been interested in. And there were you know, attempts um, to produce these types of things. But it's only once you had uh, knowledge of internal combustion engines, for example, um, uh, knowledge of metallurgy, also um, some sort of basic knowledge of aerodynamics. Um, all these things have to come together before you can build an actual airplane. Um, uh, so having all this formalized knowledge available is sort of a prerequisite to building an airplane. Uh, and it, it explains why um, uh, the Wright brothers succeeded in the late 19th century, whereas earlier attempts had failed. Um, so yeah, this, this kind of invention um, is, is made possible by the formalization of knowledge. Uh, and um, yeah, and so it, um, it relies on the fact that this knowledge is now explicit instead of implicit. Uh, and then so he, he also talks about um, uh, what he calls subjective formalization. So this is uh, formalization in the, do the domains of the normative and the artistic. Um, so he talks about how um, you have norms in, in some societies, you have, or actually in all societies, there are some norms that are not sort of explicitly stated. Um, you have um, some sort of uh, um, some sort of notion of what is appropriate for particular situations. Uh, and um, often, so one of the examples that he talks about is uh, the, the sort of um, uh, separation of different moments uh, in, in the course of a year, for example, uh, in terms of uh, various celebrations. So you have like a harvest festival, a new year festival, um, uh, I don't know, maybe a midwinter festival, some, you know, different uh, moments of the year have these sort of... Uh, um, uh, consecration ceremonies where you sort of mark the passage of a uh, um, of a moment of the year um, and uh, and so this this form of uh, separation of a, a sort of um, key point of the year or of a, a passage of a portion of the year is a kind of formalization uh, uh, as, as Simon Don describes it so it's a it's a way of um, sort of separating out different aspects of the year. So the activities that belong to the harvest season are now sort of marked off from the activities that belong to, um, I don't know, the post-harvest season, um, um, I don't know, marketing your, your crops or whatever. Um, so um, instead of having sort of uh, all activities being uh, kind of implicitly uh, related to each other, now we have this sort of explicit junction point between one set of activity and uh, one set of activities and another set of activities. Um, so we have this formal uh, mark of when you know activity type A ends and when activity type B begins. And uh, and so he calls this a, a kind of religious formalization. Um, and so we can think of religious ceremonies in the sort of strict sense of the term. So things like baptism, uh, first communion, uh, and and all these types of ceremonies. But he he also has in mind um, any type of um, ceremony that marks a, a change of state for a person uh, in in our society. So many of these are not explicitly religious in our society, but things like uh, a graduation ceremony from school, um, uh, retirement parties uh, in the workplace, for example. Um, so these these mark moments of transition, and they, they sort of put an end to one kind of activity and uh, initiate another kind of activity. 
Uh, and so these these are uh, sort of formal in the sense that they um, they delineate different aspects of life from each other. Um, and so this is a, a, a kind of formalization in the normative sphere. And then in the artistic sphere as well, there's a um, it, so formalization here would be, again, a kind of separation, whereas in many societies or probably all societies, you have um, decoration of sort of everyday life things. You know, we paint the walls of our house um, a color that we find pleasing. Um, we, you know, have some sort of ornamentation on our utensils or um, uh, implements that we use every day. Um, so most probably all societies have... Um, uh, something more than just purely utilitarian uh, um, equipment that they put to use. Uh, but then uh, at some point uh, in certain societies, uh, probably not all societies, there's um, uh, a kind of separation of the artistic aspect from the use aspect. So you, you get to produce objects that are not meant to be used in everyday life, but they're meant to produce an aesthetic effect of some kind. Uh, independent of their um, properties as useful to to perform a certain task, uh, and so these are what we recognize as art objects, uh, paintings, sculptures, um, musical performances, etc. Um, so all of these objects are again sort of separated out from everyday life, and um, they mark a certain um, uh, uh, a certain uh, portion of the world uh, in space and time as being uh, a sort of uh, of special importance or special uh, value to life. Uh, and uh, I don't think Simon Doe talks about this, but of course there's um, a, a high degree of connection between the religious formalization and the artistic formalization. Um, like religious ceremonies often involve music. Um, uh, the buildings in which religious ceremonies are performed, you know, temples, churches, etc., are often... Um, very elaborate, um, decorated buildings, uh, or even if they are, are not decorated, if they're plain, that uh, plainness is meant to um, have an aesthetic effect as well. Um, uh, so there's a, a sort of aesthetics of religious ceremonies. Uh, and then conversely, there's, uh, to some extent at least, um, kind of religion of aesthetics as well. So, you know, you don't... Um, you don't uh, consume or appreciate art objects just in any circumstance, but you you make a, a special excursion to a museum, for example, to see uh, paintings. Um, so this is a kind of uh, uh, quasi-ceremony. Um, you, you don't just sort of um, uh, appreciate art objects in any condition or at any time. You, you have to sort of set aside a, a kind of... Uh, uh, moment of time to appreciate art objects, uh, and you know, likewise, you wouldn't have um, a concert. Um, I don't know, on the middle of, in in the middle of a subway platform, uh, 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 or at least this kind of concert wouldn't have the same kind of effect as you know attending a, a, a you know a, a concert hall and appreciating the concert for itself. Um, so again, these aesthetic performances are surrounded with a kind of ritual um, that makes us, or that, that is intended to um, make us appreciate them as sort of special moments as opposed to, um, you know, just everyday moments. Uh, so this is the sort of the notion of formalization in the normative and aesthetic spheres or artistic spheres. Uh, and then, so yeah, next we'll turn to invention. Um, I think 
he's going to talk about all of those kinds of formalization and how they relate to invention. Um, but he's going to focus on technical invention. Um, so inventing, inventing technical objects and what that looks like. Uh, okay, so that's, I think, good for the um, recap. Uh, if I can get someone to read um, from the, yeah, from the, the top of section C up to uh, the beginning of the subsection one. I can read. C, invention as the production of a created object or of a work. The process of invention may be formalized more comprehensively when it produces a detachable object or a work independent from the subject that is transmissible, that can be communalized, and that constitutes the basis of a relation of cumulative participation. Without wishing to negate the theoretical possibility or actual existence of cultures within certain animal species, we should note that the main limit of these cultures devolves from the paucity of means of successive transmission. The lack of an object that is constituted as detachable from the living beings that produced it, yet uh, interpretable by other beings that reuse it by taking the results of the terminal effort of their predecessors as a starting point. In other words, it is not so much the capacity of organizing spontaneity that animal societies lack, but the power to create objects. If by creation we mean the constitution of a thing that can exist and have meaning in a way that is independent from the living activity that made it. The creation of objects enables, pro enables progress, which is a web of inventions, one resting on another, with the latest subsuming the earliest. The organization of a nest or a territory vanishes with the couple or group that formed it. It is, at least in the most elementary organic forms, that the preservation of the object created or secreted by previous generations is the most effective as an organized support for later generations. Coral, Forrest Hummus, etc. These effects of cumulative causality resurface after that in a clear and decisive way only within the human species in the form of created objects that have a meaning for a culture. There is no guaranteed progress so long as culture on the one hand and the production of objects on the other remain independent of each other. The created object is precisely an element of an or is precisely an element of organized reality that is detachable because it was produced according to a code belonging to a culture, enabling it to be used far from the time and place of its creation. The character of universality and timelessness of the created object may disclose itself in varying degrees, since cultures vary across societies. Every work and ob every work, every object and every work have in a given era a limited horizon of diffusion. However, there exists in the creative the created object of virtual universality and eternity corresponding to the inner feeling of the creating subject who thinks he is producing a tema si in the terms of Thucydides or declares like the Latin poet non omnis moriar I will not entirely die. This virtuality consists in a permanent possibility of reincorporation in other works or in subsequent creations in the form of a schema or a component, even if the individuality of the created object is not preserved across successive inventions. The process of creation of objects emerges in various domains, yet it is particularly clear, at least in our societies, in the domain of technics and in that of the arts. This, this is very interesting, um, this idea that the invention is something that enables uh, this kind of transhistorical uh, cultural transmission. It seems like in the 
idea that these objects are, they have a virtual universality and eternity. Um, Simon Don is thinking of them as being like the, um, the crystal germ, which only ever, never really completes its individuation through the milieu because it just is stopped at some point. Um, but could in principle always be reinserted into another milieu, um, through which it would propagate again. So this is an interesting suggestion that, uh, artistic and technical inventions have this same virtual eternity. Um, I think we talked about this a couple sessions ago, but, um, in the conclusion to individuation volume one, Simon Don talks about repetition, um, ethical repetition as being potentially non, non-historically simultaneous. And so maybe one way we could think about this, uh, using this paragraph is you could think of it in terms of technical objects, but I think you could also think of it in terms of like a poem, for instance, um, which is, has a life that can extend far beyond the, you know, organic life of the, the poet or the artist who created it and can be picked up again to affect a kind of co-presence um, much later um, uh, after its creation. Yeah, I think like one of the sort of um, stock examples we can take of this is the you know, Homeric poems that were written or probably weren't even written. They were probably oral productions originally, um, but were composed at you know some point probably around 800 BC, um, but uh, or, or possibly a bit earlier than that. Um, but um, you know they have been you know rediscovered many times since then and. Um, have uh, like you can think of the way that Virgil, for example, um, sort of rediscovers Homer or reinvents Homer, um, and uh, you know, in a lot of ways, is imitating the Homeric form. But of course, you know, innovates because he's writing in Latin instead of Greek, um, um, and and the way that successive generations uh, have rediscovered Homer and have found something new or created something new on basis of Homer's works. Um, uh, and, you know, you can think of, like, the huge difference in what sort of society, um, uh, you know, the Homeric poems were written in a society of pastoralist, um, sort of quasi-feudal um, organization, um, uh, you know, completely different society than, say, the Roman Empire, um, and then the Renaissance, uh, Renaissance Italy, for example, um, uh, and then, of course, today, um, these are all very different societies, but the Homeric poems still have a kind of resonance that that um, persists across all these different societies. And so I think uh, I think you're right to point to that crystal idea, but also in, in a sense it's a it's a different kind of um, persistence than in the case of the crystal. The crystal, um, you know, once it's inserted into a, a specific um, milieu, it just produces the same kind of crystal again. Uh, so you can. Uh, you can take a crystal and it, it might sit inert underground for a thousand, a million years, whatever. And then once it's inserted into a solution, it will start crystallizing again. Uh, but it still produces the same kind of crystal. Whereas these um, artistic, um, um, I don't know, productions, they, you know, get inserted into new environments and then produce something new. Um, you know, Virgil encountering Homer produces um the aeneid uh whereas uh shakespeare encountering uh greek arts uh greek uh literature 
produces um, something completely different. Um, um, so yeah, different societies will encounter these objects in different ways and will use them in different ways and, and discover new aspects of the work that were maybe not evident before um, and, and sort of uh, produce a, a, new, um, a new form, a, a new way of understanding uh, the Homeric poems uh, uh, based on a new social arrangement. Um, um, and it's also interesting to look at um, like the other, the, the first bit of this uh, passage that we just read, uh, the contrast that he makes between um, uh, conservation in animal societies uh, and conservation in human society. Um, so he suggests that, uh, and then we can probably connect this again with that contrast between the, the crystal kind of conservation and the conservation of uh, an artistic work. Um, so in, he talks about like corals, for example, um, so there is a kind of um, persist persistence of the product in the case of corals. You know, they, they form this sort of complicated um, uh, reef structure. And then the next generation grows up on uh, the reef that its ancestors produced. Um, uh, so there's a kind of inheritance, you could say, of this um, work that the corals have produced. Um, but at the same time, it's a kind of... Um, it's it's the inheritance doesn't involve any sort of creative reuptake of uh, the later generation of what came before. So the the coral that grows on the reef is just sort of inheriting the reef as a physical structure that it can um, construct its own uh, sort of um, structure upon. It doesn't sort of re uh, reinterpret or grasp in a new way or invent really anything new in relation to the existing reef. Um, whereas, in, of course, in human societies, when, uh, when we take up an artistic work from a previous civilization, we always have to reinterpret it and um, reinvent it, the understanding of that work and, uh, and that act of grasping uh, the work of a previous, even the previous generation or you know, authors from a few years ago even. Um, we, we're always uh, creatively interpreting what, what we um, inherit from them. Um, so, and then, so Simon Don suggests that the sort of more crystalline kind of inheritance, this kind of direct physical inheritance is characteristic of what he describes as the lower organisms. Um, so things like corals, um, um, and, and then he says that, you know, in the sort of other organisms, this kind of inheritance more or less disappears. Um, so in, like when, when you look at mammals, they produce, um, a burrow, for example, but then when, when or or the the organization of a territory um, with uh, you know lines for um, like a path towards the water, a path to escape, etc. Um, but all this organization of the territory more or less disappears once the once the organism dies. Um, so there's much more limited uh, inheritance of a of a work in uh, in say most mammals. And then, and then it's only in the case of humans that this sort of inheritance of the work reappears, but um, at a kind of higher level in the sense that it's a creative inheritance, it's a kind of active inheritance, as opposed to just a, a passive um, uh, sort of accumulation of the new generation on the product of the old generation. Um, so, uh, yeah, this, so we have this sort of schema of like um, this passive accumulation of the of the products of one generation, um, you know, being inherited by the next. And then uh, at a higher stage, you have um, a lower, uh, you know, less of an inheritance 
um, you know, more the, the product sort of disappears with each generation. Uh, and then um, at a higher stage, in, in the case of humans, you, you end up with a, an active inheritance. So you, you always, um, you always uh, reinterpret um, something that, that comes, uh, that came before. Yeah, and so this is yeah, this is a relevant quote here that Angus has put in the chat um, from Deleuze's Nietzsche book. Um, yeah, so the, it's the way that um, you know philosophers in you know taking up the history of philosophy, they um, sort of reanimate ph philosophical texts from the past. They don't just um, um, uh, sort of passively receive an inheritance of uh, concepts or theories or whatever. They have to sort of go back into the past and and um, actively and creatively interpret what they've received from previous authors and put them to new uses or new understandings. I, want, I wonder what it is for Simon Don that distinguishes the what is the boundary between humans and non-human animals um, that allows for this kind of taking back up of inventions by future generations. Um, he says that it's um, animal societies lack the power to, wait, yeah, lack the power to create objects. If by creation we mean the constitution of a thing that can exist and have a meaning in a way that is independent from the living activity that made it. So, like, obviously, uh, you know, a nest can still exist after it's left behind, but I guess it wouldn't have a meaning for, um, for another animal that came across it, or wouldn't have a meaning as something that is to be passed down. Yeah, I think that's a good. Uh, I'm glad you pointed that part out because it is it is um, a bit tricky or subtle, I think, to understand what he's uh, what he's getting at here. But yeah, so the nest um, when it's in use, when um, you know, we're, if we're talking about a bird nest, for example, um, when the birds are uh, sorry, one second, sorry, I had to sneeze. Um, yeah, when the birds are um, you know, raising their chicks in a nest, um, the nest has a, a certain valence in the world of the of those birds. It's like the the home base that you orient your or your um, behavior towards. Uh, so it has a meaning in that sense. Uh, but then when the birds die, the nest is really just a bundle of sticks or you know this weird bowl shaped collection of sticks or whatever. Um, it doesn't have any particular meaning. Uh, you know, in some instances. Uh, um, some animals will reuse the nests of, uh, of other animals, um, or you have like, for example, cuckoos that will lay their eggs in the nest of other birds. Um, uh, so in this case, you do have, there is some sort of meaning, um, of, or valence of the object, um, uh, that is sort of passed on from one generation to the next. Uh, but in general, um, the the object that is produced the the product of the activity of the animal only makes sense or only has a, a value um, in connection with that animal's activity uh, and then so once the animal dies or, or moves away or whatever um, that object the product of the animal's activity just becomes um, you know a, a sort of physical object that can decay or um, that that doesn't really have any meaning to it. Um, yeah, so I wonder, I mean, there are instances, uh, and yeah, maybe in connection with this, we can think of the way that animals uh, do transmit uh, culture. So there, you know, there's been uh, a fair amount of research over the last few decades in uh, looking at cultural transmission. Uh, for example, birdsong, uh, birds learn 
uh, or at least many species of songbirds learn their song by listening to adults. Um, and, and this means that there are like local dialects of the song. So um, the song, the birds in one region um, have a slightly different song than the birds in a different region because they, they each um, learn from the birds in their environment. And so they, get, they pass down all the slight variations in the, uh, in the structure of the song. Um, uh, and then whales, for example, uh, or dolphins, they, their sort of patterns of communication are also uh, cultural in the sense that they, there's regional variation that's inherited from one generation to the next. Um, but in each of these cases, what's inherited is not um, a product that is independent of the life of the organism that produces it. Um, it's it's a, what's inherited is a kind of pattern of activity um, that is intrinsically uh, connected with the life of the organism that produces it. Um, uh, you might, um, I mean, the maybe an, an exception to this might be the case of um, social insects. Um, you know, you have ants and termites, for example, and bees um, that uh, produce a, a elaborate structure like a, a beehive or um, a termite nest. Um, they produce this work that exists independently of any individual um, ant or individual termite. Um, it, you know, many of those ants and termites will die over the course of a, a year or a few years, whereas the colony as a whole will survive and continue to um, uh, sort of invest that structure with meaning. So the the individual ant dies, but the the um, the ant colony as a whole continues to use the nest and to um, you know treat it as you know a, a home. Um, so the the structure still has meaning in that sense, and so um, later, um, yeah, later generations or later um, the ants that are born later inherit um, this existing nest, this exi existing structure um, that has meaning. Uh, yeah, and so we can we can look at you know potentially in the case of some of these social insects, it might make sense to treat the the whole colony as an individual um, as opposed to the you know biologically separate individual ant as a, an individual. And, you know, we saw an individuation that he has a, a long discussion of um, different organisms, corals, for example, that exist in um, colony forms and then have a, an individual phase in reproduction. Um, and, you know, some of the, the difficult decisions uh, or difficult, um, how, how difficult it can be in certain cases to decide, you know, what the actual individual is. Um, you know, is it the... Um, the one coral organism, or is it the whole set of corals that share a digestive system? Um, you know, it's it's uh, it, you know it's, to some extent it's an arbitrary decision um, as to which one you want to treat treat as the the individual. Um, but yeah, so in the case of social insects, you might say that um, the the whole ant colony or the whole beehive is uh, is the actual individual. Um, and and so in this case, again, you would have um, each generation so like the hive um a generation of a hive would, would be um like the, the hive splits uh for example once its population grows too much it uh um a section of the bees will split off and they form a swarm uh, and then they find a new place to build a new hive so that would be the kind of reproduction of the of the hive um and the formation of a new generation and so in this case again you the the new hive doesn't inherit a structure with meaning from the um, the earlier hive, it, it only inherits um, um, a, a kind of pattern of activity um, 
that uh, that is connected to the life of the organism. It doesn't inherit something uh, separate from the life of the organism. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it, I think it's probably um, harder to make some of these distinctions than Simon Don lets on. Um, partly, you know, we just know more about um, uh, inheritance in uh various organisms today than 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 was known in the 60s um um and then maybe someone knows oversimplifying things a little bit uh even given the state of knowledge in the 60s but uh yeah it's uh, it's probably more complicated than Simondo lets on but um it, it does seem like there is um like this distinction between uh, a sort of passive accumulation um of um you know the products of one generation by the next and then a kind of um active uh re vitalization or um uh reinstituting meaning in something that already has a meaning um i think that distinction is probably still a useful one to make even if it's might even if it might not be as uh straightforward as simon is letting on okay uh so let's go on to the next page um let's see yeah uh i can get someone to read um a page or so of the next subsection here i can read um i think i'm in the right place uh, the creation of technical objects, correct? Yes, that's where we are. Okay. The continuity of what is created, with its double dimension of spatial universality and temporal eternity, emerges clearly only if we abstract from the destination of usefulness of technical objects. A definition by utility through the category of needs is inadequate and inessential since it draws attention to that through which such objects are prostheses of the human organism. Yet it is precisely from this angle that universality and atemporality are the most directly impeded, for everything that adapts to the human being runs the risk of becoming a means of display or manifestation and being recruited as supplemental appendage. A large number of technical objects are dressed up as objects of display, with local and fugitive meanings piling on them, overriding their technical content, dissimulating it, and at times imposing distortions on it. If we take the object of the so-called touring car, although this word means little in the context of most present uses, we find several layers ranging from the object of display, exterior, to the almost purely created technical object, in the scarcely visible or unknown parts for the majority of users, gears, transmission, or generator. The intermediary layer of reality, half techniques and half language, is also that partially visible and describable organs, such as the engine which announces its cylinder capacity, its compression rate, the number of speeds, and the solutions used for accessory circuits, such as oil filter. There was the era of the long engine with a num large number of cylinders in a line, then the V engine and others in flat twin designs, recently the slanted engine, not to mention the frequent incorporation in Italy of the cylinder volume in the denomination of the model or series. Variations on the external layer are at all at once infinite in number, and rather limited. They are infinite because they are continuous without the necessary gaps imposed by the state of things. All hues and all alterations of shape are possible, as in the domain of clothing. However, these alterations are limited by their compatibility with use. In the same way, clothing is limited by the shape of the body, the necessity of allowing a relative freedom of movements and of preserving a minimal usefulness. If there is creation in the external layer of display, it is akin to the invention of a compatibility between the touring automobile and other technical products. For instance, the one body for commercial vehicles and family station wagons. 
or between the car and other categories of objects according to a definite kind of line volumes, which is not without influence on clothing. Sharp angles or rounded and loose shapes trend towards large or small sizes. This aesthetics of created objects, giving them the semblance of a product of an era or civilization, is more a semantics than an aesthetic. It manifests itself simultaneously across a large number of categories of production and already lays deeper than simple external display. It registers and incorporates in objects a certain mode of communication between humans and things by exploring at each instant the most recent possibilities, as though humans must find in each object an opportunity of exploring the effect of the most recent discoveries, thereby participating to the extent they can in the whole field of contemporary activity in accordance with a norm of presentness. Here we leave the layer of the external display of technical reality in order to shift to the intermediary layer of communication with the user, which is discontinuous, more reserved, and partially addressed to the connoisseur. Yeah, we can stop here. Thanks. Um, right. So this um, here, he's contrasting um, the sort of continuity that is characteristic of technical objects in in the proper sense of the term. Uh, this, which is um, similar to the continuity of artistic objects that we were just talking about earlier. Um, this kind of continuity is distinct from the um, uh, sort of continuity that develops from the adaptation of technical objects to the human user. Um, and so this is a point, or this is related to a point that he makes in on the mode of existence of technical objects. Um, he talks about how cars, for example, have all sorts of um, uh, sort of uh, accommodations for the comfort of the user or the um, supposed comfort of the user. You can think of things like power steering, power windows, um, uh, heated seats, all this type of stuff. Um, all these things are meant to make the object seem sort of modern and um, uh, convenient and comfortable and all, the, all these sort of um, adjectives that we would apply to uh, an object, but they don't actually affect or they don't sort of fundamentally affect the functioning of the car as a vehicle. Um, and so Simon Don points out that if you try to classify technical objects in terms of their use, um, then you end up um, sort of missing the fundamental um, connections. And, and so there might be more connection between a car of a certain era and a, a boat, for example, because of the structure of the motor. Um, they might have the same sort of structure of motor um, compared to a car from one era to the car of, the, of a subsequent era. Even if the use of the cars in the two eras is the same, they might have a completely different or a, a, a very different um, sort of underlying structure in terms of how the motor is organized. Um, so, yeah, by, by sort of focusing or, or uh, yeah, by focusing on the, the use side of technical objects, you lose sight of the more fundamental um, structure of these objects. Um, and um, he, he points out here again that um, this uh, use or, or this adaptation of the technical objects to the user is um, subject to variation, a kind of infinite variation in the sense that you could have any color, any sort of, um, uh, you know, subtle variations of shape, um, um, precisely because this adaptation or this variation is, is not functional. Um, so the color of the car doesn't affect the, the speed or the capacity of the car to actually transport people. Um, so because there's no sort of functional restriction on the color of the car, you can take any for any color that um, that is, um, you know, realizable by um, the properties of paint and so on. 
Um, whereas uh, the actual technical object, uh, the sort of real technical structure, the fundamental technical structure of the car is something that can only um, undergo sort of discrete variation uh, as opposed to continuous variation. It, um, there are uh, a sort of limited, you know, with a given state of technology at a particular time, there's only limited ways you can actually change that car to make it better. Um, you know, you know uh, I don't know, the introduction of a new set of metals to make the, the engine lighter, for example, um, or something like that. Um, there's only a, a small amount of variation that actually um, preserves and enhances the functionality of the vehicle. Um, so yeah, it's uh, this contrast between um, this sort of unlimited variation of the adaptability of the object on the one hand, and then the um, much more limited domain of um, actual technical developments on the other hand. So in the beginning of this section, he says that uh, the continuity, which is the universality and eternity, is, I guess, um, this is, he associates this with the internal, it's so not, the, not the superficial or the intermediate layer, but the internal aspect of the technical object, which seems at least in the example of photography, to be the resolution of a of a disparation, which I think is something like the the behavior of light and the um, the chemical makeup of the uh, light or whatever is serving as the um, you know whatever is going to receive the image. Uh, so I guess is the idea here that the there's this fundamental disparation which is resolved in the invention of the technical object, and it's that resolution which has the continuity, and the other stuff is just kind of accidental. Um, yeah, I mean we'll talk about the camera example in a couple pages, um, but um, yeah, I think the continuity is um, so there's a continuity and discontinuity at the same time in the sense so the, there's a discontinuity in the sense that. Um, there's only a small number of possible technical developments from a given state of technology. So if you have a camera circa 1960, um, there's only so many things you can actually do to make that camera better. Um, there's only so many um, possible um, developments of this camera object that actually enhance its functioning as a camera. Um, so it's discontinuous in that sense, but then the continuity is the fact that the schema of operation, um, you know, the way that you um, use light hitting a photosensitive surface of some kind to produce an image, uh, this sort of technical schema is inherited from one um, stage of technology to the next. Um, so it's continuity in the sense of an inheritance. Um, I think I think each sort of stage of the technology is going to be its own sort of moment of individuation in the sense that it, it um, so it will be a kind of uh, overcoming of a disparation um, in its own right. Um, but it does so on the basis of an existing um, technical object that it inherits the structure from. Um, so, you know, when you when you're if you're in 1960 and you're an engineer working for Polaroid or whatever, Kodak or some one of these big uh, um, camera manufacturers, um, you're not sort of starting from scratch. You're starting on the basis of an existing um, uh, technical apparatus that you have the schema of operation of this technical apparatus, uh, and then you can modify it to um, 
improve its functioning in some way. Uh, and so this is, um, you're, you're inventing something, but at the same time, you're inventing it on the basis of an existing uh, technical schema. Um, so it's, it's, uh, there's a continuity um, um, in inheritance, but a discontinuity in terms of the, the sort of spectrum of possible developments that is presented to you as the, um, as the potential inventor. Okay, uh, let's go on to the next bit. Um, I can read the next page. This semantics uh, of presentness of what is created was translated in the car of 1925, but the visible use of light alloys or aluminum, whose functional meaning came from aeronautical construction at a time when canvas was replaced by metallic surfaces. At the same time, we find light alloys in medical devices and photographic enlargers, in a vast number of home appliances, and even in furniture, doorknobs and handles. The usefulness of the choice of aluminum in small amounts, for example, on the dashboard of a car, is near zero, since the total weight is only infinitesimally lightened. Yet the inclusion of this metal at the key point, the dashboard, enables the automobile to speak in its communication with the driver in the language of aviation. At that time, because aviation itself was the, quote, pilot, progressing in leaps and bounds, aluminum was a more, quote-unquote, technical metal than others. In touring cars after World War II, there was a proliferation of minor automatism and controls used in the Navy and Air Force, where masses to be moved exceeded human force, and control panels are required. The use of a material displaying the presence does not only reflect within a given techniques the prestige of the triumphant techniques in which the material has functional usefulness. This use also corresponds to the transposition across many domains of a trend that arose in such a general area that it inaugurates lasting training and radiates perceptual and operational norms. The house with, the large, with large glass surfaces imposed its large, nearly flat windows on the car, comparable to picture windows, and victorious over the aerodynamics of shapes. Like the cupboard integrated into stone walls, the trunk of cars formerly brought from the outside onto the car body is now part of the whole and is undergoing a sustained development. Each created object thus takes part in the contemporary activity of creation according to general modalities, which unify solutions and align them with either a state-of-the-art techniques or with implementations whose constant use imposes common norms on a whole population, for instance in modern housing. This communication among the middle layers of the created object causes there to be, at each moment, not only parallel sets of created objects distributed across categories of use, but a world of created objects, of creation. Nonetheless, in both the external and middle layers, we are dealing only with an organization of extrinsic compatibility, comparable to the rules of a language tending to become a coin that, conversely, the organization of the internal and properly technical layer makes the created objects into a real invention, formalizing it concretely by giving it the features of an organism through the search for conditions of intrinsic compatibility. We no longer deal here with an active display nor with a semantic relation to the universe of techniques and its progression, but with a direct and immediate adequation between the, the active invention and the created object. The created object is, not, is in its very essence a reality instituted by the invention. This essence is primordial and may exist without display and without expression. Uh, yeah, let's, let's stop here. Um, so yeah, he's talked about this superficial layer so you know the color of the car the you know some slight variations on the shape and so on uh and the next now he's going on to the middle layer so here um there's a again a sort of communicative function of uh these aspects of the of the vehicle the vehicle for example um so he talks about like um using aluminum on the dashboard of a car um so this uh, from a functional point of view, this has relatively little effect on the car. Um, you know, the, the dashboard is a very small part of the weight of the car, so using lightweight metals doesn't really affect the car, uh, you know, as it, as it functions. So in, in this sense, it uh, has a decorative role, similar to the superficial um, aspects like the color of the car. 
uh, but at the same time, it's drawn from the, the the sort of communicative function of the um, the aluminum dashboard is drawn from another technical realm where it does have a functional rule. Uh, so in the case of the the car, the the aluminum dashboard in the car, it's the the realm of aeronautics. So on an airplane. Um, building things out of aluminum actually does have a functional role because saving weight is a, a very important function in the design of an airplane. Um, so it's um, the communicative function of the aluminum dashboard is sort of borrowing the technical value uh, of another domain. Um, so you're, by, by having a, um, an aluminum dashboard, you're communicating the fact that your car is modern and um, you know, uses all the technical um, developments of aeronautics for the purpose of the the you know modernity and sophistication of this car um even though of course the actual contribution that this um aluminum dashboard makes to the functioning of the car is is minimal it's the communication of this borrowed technical sophistication that is uh that is uh, sort of characteristic of this middle layer um uh so you can think of like um I think maybe a more contemporary example would be like smart devices, um, the way that um, so many uh, devices that you you can buy today, uh, you can connect your fridge to the internet, for example, and uh, um, have it like tell you, like you can, I don't know, check your fridge from work and see if your like stock of milk is low or whatever. Um, um, yeah, so this idea that um, the, the high-tech sphere of um, computers and the internet is sort of incorporated into your um, home appliances uh, is is a sort of borrowing one tier's technical developments and uh, inserting them into another primarily for a communicative function. Um, you know, there might be some advantages to having your fridge connected to the internet, but I think the, the main function is to communicate how, like, sophisticated your device is. Um, um, and again, like cars have incorporated all sorts of uh, computer functions now um, um, that, you know, you have, uh, uh, you know, sensors and uh, cameras and all this built into a car, um, which, again, you know, has a certain functional role in, you know, it might make it easier to park your car if you have a, a, a camera for uh, like a backup camera. Um, but uh, it also plays this communicative function of, you know, showing that your car is very modern. Yeah, a hackable refrigerator. Obviously, there's a yeah, a whole like the advantages of your um, uh, that you get from having your fridge connected to um, the internet also come with a lot of disadvantages. In the yeah, in the sense that you your device is now um, accessible to not just you as the owner of the house or owner of the fridge, but uh, potentially other people. You know, if you can access it over the internet, then that means other people can potentially access it if they can. Um, uh, get around whatever security precautions you've taken, and many of these devices have very limited security um, uh, sort of setups. Um, so yeah, having you know every appliance in your house connected to the internet means that um, all of that information is now sort of uh, potentially accessible. Uh, so there's probably good reasons to uh, to not want your technical appliances in your house to be connected to the internet. Um, so yeah, whether whether the um, advantages of your, um, you know, smart fridge and smart dishwasher and all this um, outweigh the potential risks of having all that information available online, 
Um, I'm not convinced, but uh, apparently some people are because people buy these things. Um, um, but again, it's a, a big part of the, the value of this um, uh, smart appliance is precisely the fact that it communicates that the user is you know, high tech and sophisticated uh, and has the money to buy this you know, cutting edge fridge or, or cutting edge dishwasher. Um, as opposed to whatever you know functional advantage you actually get from having your fridge connected to the internet. So again, uh, so just before we go on to the next bit, so um, I wanted to sort of emphasize the contrast or to um, re-explain the contrast between the superficial layer and the intermediate layer that Simon has, has um, set out here. So the, the superficial layer has to do purely with the um, um, adaptation to the user in the sense that um, it, it doesn't sort of rely on any technical um, functioning. Uh, so again, you can think of the color of your car, um, you know, some variations of shape and so on. Um, this is like a purely aesthetic in the sense, like aesthetic, not even in the sense of like artistic production, but just in terms of like a, a sort of pure impression of like this color looks cool or something like that. Um, um, so yeah, this, this is the first, the, the superficial layer. And then the intermediate layer is is still it still primarily has a communicative function in uh, it, it's sort of you know a car with a certain um, type of uh, you know this aluminum dashboard for example um, it conveys a message about the user about the owner of the car it says you know this person is sophisticated and high tech and so on um, but it does so by borrowing from uh, another technical sphere where there is a functional value to the aluminum. Um, uh, construction uh so you know by it it's it's uh it's not a, a purely um aesthetic function in the sense that you know, aluminum doesn't sort of look nicer than other materials uh or at least arguably um uh, i don't think most people would say aluminum is like a particularly um like intrinsically aesthetically pleasing material it's just a sort of gray metal kind of color um but it's the fact that there's this association with the airplane. Um, it's, it's this uh, sort of borrowing of the technical function from another sphere that makes this aluminum dashboard into something that has a communicative function and that conveys the, the high-tech nature of the device. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, I guess, this like intrinsic um, uh, aesthetic value um, that sort of adapts the, the object to the the user in the case of the um, superficial layer, and then it's this extrinsic um, value of borrowing the technical um, functioning from um, from uh, another domain um, that uh, that characterizes this intermediate uh, level. Yeah, and so Angus has posted a picture of a, a race car with an aluminum dashboard. Yeah, it does look fast, uh, and everything's red too. Red is the fast color. Um, um, yeah, it's... Uh, I mean, maybe in the case of a race car, it might actually be technically um, useful. Like, you know, again, race cars, you need to, to reduce the weight. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm not sure, you know, with the, like, technical um, possibilities that were available whenever this car was made, I don't know if aluminum was, like, the best material for, um, you know, combining weight and strength, um, or if there were other materials that might have been better, but the aluminum sort of... Um, conveys the message of like speed and sophistication uh, in a way that um, other materials might not have. I can read the next um, the next page or so. Are we at the display? Uh, yes. So yeah, you can read. Yeah, we still have 
several pages in this uh, subsection, so just, just read a page. Okay. The display, external layer, and the expression, the middle layer, could not exist if they were not supported by the internal layer, the nexus of productive and resistant technicity, upon which the external and middle layers develop like parasites, with an importance that varies in accordance with social and psychosocial circumstances. Situations of danger, of extreme difficulty, or war perform a purge of the inessential, letting the invented object emerge in its essential state. The primitive version of an invention is also, quote-unquote, wilder than its later version for mass distribution. The reaction of external layers back onto the invented object can, in certain cases, occasion a regression, uh, as has happened recently in the domain of photography, where we see a generalized use of cameras whose optical attributes are very much below the actual possibilities of production, but which are endowed as a counterpart with a few rather limited automatisms that avoid gross errors and exposure time and give access without training to the use of photography by a wider public knowing nothing of optics and photometry. By moving far afield of the place and time of the invention, the technical object may also undergo a split along the various layers, differently inflected according to use and social strata. Thus, photography first developed among knowledgeable amateurs and professionals who not only knew how to use a camera correctly, but also how to develop and print sensitive elements. The first split occurred when the vast majority of amateurs left it to artisans to develop and print their films. This is when the camera for the amateur became a camera with a roll of film, easy to transport and ship, while the professional camera retained the sensitive plate on a glass or plate film. Um, the third dichotomy took place with the launching of industrial development and printing, which no longer allowed the control or adaptation of each snapshot to variations of exposure time, especially for color pictures whose error tolerance is very small. It is to this industrialization that cameras with closed cartridges correspond, with very rudimentary optics and automatic settings of the diaphragm aperture and no distance focus. The old amateur camera has not disappeared, but has become specialized and perfected for photojournalism. These two successive dichotomies produced a tripartite split at the end of which we find, first, at the purely technical layer, a camera chamber equipped with film plates for scientific, geographical, and professional photography. The middle layer, corresponding to the predominance of expression, is concretized in photojournalist cameras with a wide set of optical and photometric settings. Finally, the external layer of display is expressed in the wide dissemination of simplified but automated enclosed cameras. We should note that this tripartite split corresponds to clearly separated functions in the uses of photography by various operators. A camera is in the hands of someone whose essential function at the moment of operating is to take a photograph. The photojournalist camera belongs to a journalist taking photographs for an investigation or during travel. The photograph has a professional value, but it, but it is auxiliary. Uh, finally, the down-market cameras correspond to a leisure function of which they are a manifestation and to which they are negatively adapted by virtue of their automatisms not having a sufficient extension to be applied to conditions outside of bright daylight and subjects located a few yards from the operator. Um, trying to understand how the the technical camera chamber how the what he has in mind for after this tripartite split 
like what is the camera that represents this pure camera chamber with film plates as opposed to the middle layer which is the photojournalist camera but i guess i understand the broader point which is that there's this core technical function um which can become distorted by uh these um kind of user interface or um what he calls automatisms of uh aspects of the technical object that are not available to non-experts basically yeah i think the the sort of pure um instance or the pure instance here is what he's calling the scientific um camera so it's like um so this is the one where you still have the glass plate for example um so here in a, a scientific um uh so again i'm i'm not like that familiar with um the state of photography circa 1960 so i'm sort of taking uh taking what he says as uh uh valid um but um the the scientific camera so if you're taking a picture of a scientific specimen or you're doing a geographical survey or something like that you the whole purpose of your picture is to get as good um as much resolution as possible um and, you know as accurate a representation of the image of the object being uh, photographed as possible um so here you need to have um uh you know as as good uh photographic um properties as possible and so that requires um uh adjustability of the mechanism for you know different exposure lengths um different um uh lens um uh distances and so on uh everything has to be adjustable and that means that to operate this kind of camera you have to actually know what you're doing in terms of um optics and uh exposure times and all this stuff um so this is like the pure uh, the pure end of the spectrum where the technical functioning of a camera is um at most exposed to the user uh and there's a minimum of um sort of adaptation to the user uh the the next one up is the photojournalist uh camera where um um here the camera has to be usable in a wide variety of settings um so a photojournalist might um might be taking pictures of all kinds of different uh scenes um you know different lighting situations etc so there there has to be an adaptability but the purpose of the photo is not so much to accurately convey the dimensions and shape etc of a of an object but to convey um uh, a kind of meaning of a scene um so um you you can uh you can to some extent mask the um different adaptation settings so you can have like instead of having uh, a continuously variable exposure and lens distance you could have like say 10 settings that you can choose from uh so you still have to have some sort of understanding of you know you know how the light conditions relate to the camera settings for example uh so it still requires a certain amount of knowledge um but it's less than for the technical the purely technical camera the scientific camera uh and then the the sort of extreme end of the spectrum is the um like the tourist camera um it's designed just for taking pictures of your family, you know, from a few meters away uh, under, uh, you know, normal lighting conditions outside. Um, so it, um, it, it has a, a minimum of uh, options in terms of changing the settings. Uh, it, it essentially just does one thing, you know, moderately well without producing errors. Uh, and so uh, most of the... Um, uh, possibilities for the exposure time and lens distance and all that stuff are all sort of preset and there's nothing that you as the user need to know how to do.
Um, so here we have um, these three layers uh, of the technical object are all sort of split into um, different technical objects that each have an emphasis on one of those layers. Uh, and so this is, um, uh, yeah, maybe like a, uh, an extreme case, like in the case of cameras, um, but in other for other technical objects, it might not be quite as um, um, clear which layer is predominant in a particular technical object. There might be like um, technical objects that have some aspects that are more uh, purely technical and other aspects that are more intermediate and 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 then further aspects that are sort of um, superficial. Um, so yeah, there's like, uh, this is like a, a pure case where each of these functions is separated out into a different technical object, uh, whereas in other spheres of technical um, development, there might be objects that combine these different layers into one technical object. It's interesting to me that he he seems to, he, he describes uh, the effect of the superficial and intermediate layers on the um, internal technical layer in um, kind of strong, like... <laughs> uh moralistic or ethical terms like he calls them parasites on the on the internal technical layer um and he does really seem to think that they they tend to get in the way or at least they they can get in the way and they do um in the instance of the camera of the essential function it also seems like the they the user interface layers get in the way by um handling for the user the uh, actions that the the expert or the um, the artisan would know uh, the connoisseur would know how to to um, carry out themselves so it's because the machine or the technical object handles these actions for the user that these automatisms get in the way of the essential technical function yeah so so the, yeah that's another bit that I didn't mention uh, my summary there that um yeah so Simon Don talks about this feedback effect of the um of the uh, intermediate and superficial layers onto the technical layer um so what he means by that is that uh, so, or at least in the case of the camera, the technical layer um has like an open uh an openness to it it, it has this range of variation so um the the scientific camera um, allows for a wide variety of um, light exposure settings and uh, lens aperture and, and all this stuff. Um, everything about the camera is adjustable so that you can, you know, get the precise um, uh, required settings to uh, capture the object as as perfectly as possible. Um, and then what the uh, intermediary and uh, superficial layers do. Um, so this adaptation to the user um, sort of cuts down the amount of variation successively uh, at, at each level of, uh, of the technical development. So the photojournalist camera has a, a few settings, but has much fewer um, options for uh, variability compared to the scientific camera. And then the um, sort of uh, uh, camera for the masses um, has essentially no variation, uh, no options in terms of um, what settings you can use. Uh, so it it cuts back on the um, technical capacities of the object. Uh, so the kinds of pictures that you could take that are available in terms of the um, technical capacities of uh, the 1960s, uh, these 
capacities are um, sort of restricted in such a way that um, the camera can take a, a decent picture under average circumstances, um, as opposed to a perfect picture under a wide variety of circumstances. Um, so um, yeah, so it's it's feeding back onto the te technical apparatus, uh, onto the technical level by um, restricting the possibilities to a, a small subset of what um, what would be technically possible. Uh, so yeah, this this I think is um, I think this is what he means by this feedback. Uh, and so we can see, I mean, yeah, you're right that Simon don't uses these kind of value-laden terms to describe it. Yeah, like a parasite. Um, it's a very strong term, um, but I think. For Simon Don, there's a kind of ethics of technical objects in the sense that we should um, uh, try to appreciate technical objects in terms of their actual functioning, uh, um, and and so this this is like grasping the essentials of an object, whereas um, treating a technical object purely in terms of the use um, usefulness for you know meeting certain human needs is kind of a um, uh, is a kind of um, superficial appreciation of the object it, it doesn't really grasp the object as uh as a you know in its own sort of uh, in its own right um it doesn't grasp the essence of the object um so yeah there's an ethics of the technical object um he even i think in one of his interviews he talks about um the importance of repairing old technical objects and appreciating um the the way that an old object still works you know even if it um if it's not like the most modern it doesn't have like all the uh, you know, fancy um, decorations, and it's not connected to the internet, for example. Um, it it still works, um, and you can still appreciate it for um, the functioning that it has uh, as a technical object. Um, so yeah, I think he for him, um, not valuing the technical object uh, for its technical functioning, this intrinsic functioning of the technical object means a kind of um, neglect of that technical object, which is um, uh, a kind of ethical uh, lack. Um, you're you're not sort of fulfilling your obligations towards that technical essence of the object. Yeah, I think that's a good example in in another sphere. So yeah, you can you can talk about like um, you know if you like all you read of Shakespeare is like some like Coles notes or, or whatever, you have sort of missed the point of reading Shakespeare. You've like um, uh, you might have like some superficial understanding of the plot of various plays. You might like have some familiarity with some important lines or whatever, but you won't really get the the experience of you know appreciating a Shakespeare play um, on in, on your own and uh, grasping the essence of that um, aesthetic production. And so I think it's the same type of thing here with a technical object where. Um, learning to use the technical objects that doesn't sort of um, uh, accommodate to the user. Um, so grasping the, the, the technical object in its actual functioning um, and, you know, all the range of possibilities that are available um, that you have to learn how to use. Um, this is a kind of firsthand experience of the technical object, whereas um, using the, like, um, uh, the type of camera that, you know, has only one setting that sort of produces decent pictures most of the time. Um, this type of uh, um, encounter with a technical object is a kind of secondhand encounter. You're only getting uh, a small slice of the technical possibilities that the designers of this object have sort of pre um, pre chosen for you. I think, though, I mean, maybe to to counter that, of course, um, 
uh, you know, and this is even more the case today than it was in uh, 1960, um, you can't be an expert in every single technical object that is available on the market. Um, you know, you, uh, as a, a person who lives in a society with many thousands of technical objects available, you can, you know, become an expert in how to use cameras, for example, um, uh, you know, and, and buy a camera that allows you to adjust the light settings and the lens and all this. Um, you can be an expert in a camera, but um, you can't at the same time be an expert in, uh, I don't know, cars and um, uh, airplanes and like every single technical object. You, you, you have to, you, you can become an expert in a few technical objects, but not in every single technical object. Um, uh, you know, you know, someone like Simon Don had a, a wide um, knowledge of technical um, uh, technical matters in general. He had you know a lot of familiarity with how these objects work. Um, he obviously was not an expert in every single technical object that existed in 1960, and there are many more technical objects now, and and many of them uh, are much more sophisticated than the ones that were available in 1960. Um, so again, you you can't be an expert in everything. So um, uh, this sort of ideal of um, having a, a first-hand knowledge of every technical object is is unrealizable. And so I think we probably need some sort of um, uh, understanding of the ethics of technical objects that um, that sort of accounts for the fact that we can't um, understand everything in all this detail. And, uh, you know, in some respects, it is necessary to rely on the designers of objects to sort of pre-select, um, uh, I don't know, like, it's probably not that ethically important that you use a microwave that allows you to adjust every single setting as opposed to just pressing the on button. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, maybe there's, you know, some value in understanding the functioning of the microwave, but like, there's also value in not having to care how the microwave works and just using it to heat your food and, you know, do something else uh, and save the time. Um, so yeah, there's, uh, yeah, it's, um, I think an ethics of technical objects would have to take account for this um, sort of value of, you know, selective attention as well. Okay, uh, I think we have time for probably one more selection, one more um, passage. So, um, 61, if you would like to read uh, another page. Oh, I got sidetracked. What, um, where, where are we? Uh, we are on page 168 at the technical object as a product of invention. Okay, got it. Uh, the technical object as a product of invention is characterized in an essential way by its organic character, which we might equally call a structural and functional self-correlation. As opposed to the divergence of adaptive evolution that specializes the product according to categories of users, in particular, in our chosen example, the foundation of photography as an invention should not be sought only in the camera, but in the compatibility of a photosensitive surface with the reduction of the camera obscura in a photographic camera. Camera obscuras and photochemicals such as the bitumen of Judea were, were known before the invention of photography. The invention consisted in putting light to work, directly and automatically, on a photosensitive substance inside a small camera obscura, forming an actual image of objects. The various successive improvements brought about more perfect conditions of compatibility between the photochemical phenomenon and the phenomenon of physical optics, especially through the discovery of a compound that retained its sensitivity for a long time after its fabrication, which also preserved, without alteration and until it was developed, the effect of light after exposure in the form of a latent image. The compatibility 
resides in the suspension of the chemical activity of the sensitive compound between fabrication and development, enabling the taking of the shot to be inserted within this temporal interval. To recall again the diverging specializations which follow the different layers, we can see that the use which gives priority to the most essential layer is also that which maintains the highest degree of compatibility between optical and chemical processes. With a professional camera using glass or film plates, and even with the most advanced photojournalistic cameras, each shot can be developed by itself. The Polaroid system, which features development and printing a few seconds or dozens of seconds after the snapshot, brings about a temporal and local compatibility between both processes whose interaction constitutes photography as an invention. Moreover, the system implements a camera comparable to a professional photo photographic camera, at least with reference to the large format and the apparatus of the bellows. The Polaroid camera, rather than extending the divergent use which separates the display and expression aspects of the fundamental photographic apparatus, brings this diverging bundle together into a single unit, covering the whole spectrum of possible uses, from professional to leisure uses, including photojournalism and related applications, like the distribution of actors before a cinem cinematographic take, through the retroaction of photographs on the actor's poses. This new wave of invention in the domain of photography increases the compatibility between physical and chemical processes to such a point that it makes possible retroaction within the snapshot itself. A first photograph being used to improve framing, composition of subject matter, and optical settings for the next photograph. Certainly, the invention of the Polaroid apparatus is the result of very advanced industrialization. Yet, according to a common effect in technological matters, this true invention, bearing on the essential and constituting a major progress, restores some aspects of the activity of amateurs, in particular the extreme decentralization of the activity of operation and a complete operative independence in relation to a centralized industrial universe. To the same extent, crossing the threshold of an essential improvement enables the reconvergence as a base unit of the various branches of an initially single technics, branches which minor advances in social and economic adaptation had superficially differentiated. Yeah, we can stop here. Um, the, next, the next paragraph is one of his uh, famous multi-page paragraphs. So. Uh, Let's not embark on that uh, journey just yet. Um, yeah, so um, it's interesting here that he, he looks at the Polaroid camera. So you might think that a Polaroid camera would, would be something um, sort of uh, that would fit under the intermediate or superficial categories. Uh, so it's a camera that's obviously um, marketed to, um, to users as you know, more convenient. You, you, you take a picture and then you... Uh, you get a the the print um, you know within a few seconds, um, but at the same time it um, it allows for um, again this convergence of the um, the the two streams of, of technical thought that uh, or the two technical schemas that um, that have to be combined to form a camera. So there's the optical stream, um, so the perfection of lenses and so on, uh, and then there's the photosensitive chemical stream. Um, um, that has to, and then these two things have to be combined to form what we recognize now as a camera. Um, and, and so he points out that, for example, with a, a Polaroid camera, you can do something like you can set up a scene and take a picture and then look at the print within a few seconds and see, okay, the lighting is slightly off or the composition is not what I wanted and, and you can adjust things and, and retake it. So you can perfect the functioning of a camera. Um, you can get all the settings um, adjusted properly um, 
through a sort of iterative process. And so instead of having to sort of get everything perfectly right uh, at once and then ship off the film, and then a few weeks later you see, oh, actually, it wasn't uh, exactly what I wanted. Um, now you can, you know, sort of uh, shorten that loop and, and, and perform the, this um, first uh, composition uh, and then uh, take the picture, uh, examine the composition and see, you know, what you can improve. Uh, you can do that all within a few minutes. Um, so this actually allows to uh, improve the functioning of a camera um, in terms of this uh, convergence of the optical and the photosynthetic series. Um, uh, so it, uh, and then at the same time, it also allows the amateur photographer to um, have a greater control over um, the, the process um, where previously you had to send off your film to uh, you know, a company that would develop it. Um, um, now you can do the development uh, in your own home or in your own studio or whatever. Um, you, um, you're sort of separated, or you're not separated, but you're um, autonomous from the, the whole industrial system of uh, uh, the film development process. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it makes the amateur more independent in that way as well. Uh, when you're talking about this uh, convergence of these two series, the um, optical series and the photo, uh, photosensitive chemical series, it, it uh, makes me think of um, at the um, Ashmolean Museum uh, in Oxford uh, that I visited uh, last spring. They had a, an exhibition on uh, an early photographer whose name I can't remember, um, but he used um, um, some sort of silver compound. Uh, I forget exactly what it was, but it um, it actually has the property that um, so it's photosensitive, but it doesn't get fixed in the first exposure. So it means that the the photos or the the prints that you produce with this substance are still sensitive to light even after the initial exposure. Um, uh, and so it makes it very difficult to, um, preserve these early photographs because every time you, um, like expose them to light at all, they, they change slightly. Um, so, uh, yeah, the exhibition, like they showed them, but it was like a, in a very low light room. Um, but even that is still, you know, slightly changing the, um, the, you know, structure of the, the patterns on the photosensitive surface, um. So it's it's the separation between the photosensitive surface and the print that appears in later photography that allow, allows for um, the production of something that is no longer photosensitive. Um, uh, so you 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 capture the image using a photosensitive substance and then you print it onto something that is not photosensitive or much less photosensitive, uh, and uh, and then the the image that you have produced in the print uh, you can use um, you can um, uh, you know put up on posters or whatever, you can allow it to be exposed to light without, um, uh, you know, changing the image in the way that um, these other sort of early prints um, or early photographic processes, uh, you know, sub subsequently underwent that deterioration. The distinction between the different layers in terms of use, um, you must mean that uh, the, the use, the user interface of the superficial and intermediate layer is dependent upon the initial technical layer because here you know this initial resolution of the two series is is itself uh, like even the the most technical scientific camera is something that is being used by somebody to take a photo um so it seems like it's 
the difference is less the fact that it is being used by somebody using the object than it is that the use is more or less dependent on another use or I guess in the term in for the essential technical layer it's not dependent on anything else at all other than being used by the the user yeah so you're right yeah definitely every technical object is used by someone um so there has to be a, like a minimum of adaptation in the sense that like um it has to be physically possible to turn on the device it has to be you know the using the device has to be um uh, the device has to be like you know shielded in such a way that it's not like physically dangerous to turn it to hold it or turn it on or or whatever. Um, so there's sort of a minimum adaptation to a human user that is required. Um, uh, but I think the difference here is like the direction of the overall adaptation. So is it is it the device that has to be adapted to the user? Um, so in the case of the um, camera for tourism it's uh the device the, the technical possibilities of the device are restricted so that um you can take a decent image under normal lighting um with without any sort of adjustment um uh so the technical possibilities are restricted to allow a user who has no interest in or no knowledge of uh um the these technical possibilities to to use the device or conversely um with the scientific camera, it's the user who has to adapt to the technical device. So the user has to actually learn, um, you know, undergo a process of transformation of some kind. Um, you know, it could be more or less intensive depending on what kind of technical device it is, but um, has to adapt themselves to the technical object, has to learn how to use it in such a way that they can produce the results that they want. Um, so it's not so much, so yeah, of course, every technical object has a user, but it's the question is whether it's the user that has to adapt to the technical object or the technical object that has to adapt to the user. Um, so yeah, I think that's it's this direction of adaptation that is what um, what makes the distinction between the two. I think I just understood, uh, I, I think it was in um, the beginning, or towards the beginning of Individuation Volume 2, where he had that mysterious reference to surrealist artworks. Um, but I was just looking at my notes and I think that the reason he likened the technical object to the surrealist object is because the surrealist object is not useful. Um, and I wonder if, if this is the kind of, uh, I don't know if he, if he thinks of the internal technical layer as like a surrealist object in that, as you said, you know, you it has to be conformed to rather than, um, you know, conforming itself to the person who encounters the surrealist object in order to make it a kind of pleasant and sensible encounter and experience. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember that passage, but that, that sounds, um, yeah, that sounds interesting, uh, in terms of a connection. Um, I think, yeah, we can think of like, not just surrealist, but I guess art from the sort of mid 20th century onwards, um, where, the pursuit of beauty in a more sort of traditional sense is less and less um, the the focus of art. Um, if you go to a, like a contemporary art exhibit um, at a museum today, um, many of the objects are not going to be beautiful in any like sort of standard sense. Um, whereas if you go to a you know exhibit of you know even early twentieth century you know impressionists or something like that, um, the the objects the paintings are beautiful in in some sense uh so these objects that sort of that we find in contemporary art they they at least in terms of 
their intention. They're meant to produce an effect on the user, on the viewer, um, uh, that requires the viewer to learn to understand them and to grasp what they're doing. Um, you don't have a, you know, whereas a, a sort of classical sculpture, you just sort of see the beauty of the form. Um, it, it's something that you kind of, not quite passively, but um, you don't need to learn to appreciate uh, like Renaissance sculptures. You can already see the, the sort of um, aesthetic value of them without really learning anything about art. Um, but then for more contemporary art, you have to actually sort of learn to appreciate what it is that the artist is doing rather than having this sort of immediate experience of beauty. Um, so yeah, I think I think this is a, a similar type of phenomenon where, like the technical object that you have to learn how to use, um, the artwork in more contemporary art um, is something that you have to learn how to grasp and how to um, experience. It's not something that you have like a, um, a sort of immediate understanding of. And you can see with this also like the way that um, aesthetic categories change like someone like people like the impressionists for example when when they first started painting uh, and exhibiting in the late 19th century they were treated as like um you know their work was treated as being like sort of amateur and and like not um like the people who who saw it in or many of the art critics who looked at it in the early days um saw it as um they they had a similar kind of experience of like what is this like this is not good art this is not what i recognize as beautiful um whereas today of course these paintings sell for many millions of dollars you know people travel around the world and visit museums where they're exhibited um, um so the the sort of uh, aesthetic experience um categories that we bring to uh to understanding uh paintings have changed over the last hundred years or so um so maybe one day these uh you know, weird sort of contemporary art things that are, you know, made out of garbage or whatever. It's, uh, you know, something like this. Maybe someone 100 years from now will, will have, like, similar experience of, you know, this is just beautiful in in, a, in the way that we uh, we experience Impressionist art. The other thing I was going to mention, it, it's somewhat um, tangential to the main point of this passage, but uh, when he talks about Polaroid here, uh, it reminds me, I, I was just reading uh, in the last couple of weeks, um, an article about um, there was a, a boycott campaign against Polaroid in the 1970s because um, Polaroid had this camera, I think it was the D1, if I remember correctly, was the name of it. Um, that um, it so the sort of purpose of this camera was that you could produce ID cards um, very quickly, like you take a picture and then the camera would print not not like a, a normal photograph, but a, an ID card. Um, um, uh, and this was used by apartheid South Africa to um, produce uh, passes that all black people had to uh, bring with them at all times um, that, you know, the police would check and so on. Um, and uh, at one point, Polaroid um, stopped selling directly to South Africa, but they would sell to third party distributors who would in turn sell it to the South African police. Um, and uh, um, yeah, so anyway, there was this boycott campaign against Polaroid. And uh, so the the article I was reading about this pointed out that um, this camera had uh, a setting, a boost setting, so it would boost the light um, exposure by like 43% or something like that of the of the the light in the flash. And um, this turns out to be like pretty much the exact quantity that you need to take a picture uh, to, to adjust the light settings for um, a white subject to a, a black subject. Um, darker skin requires more light to get a, an adequate um, picture. So you just press this boost button 
and then you can take a picture of a black person with um, adequate light. And uh, and so Polaroid, you know, denied that this was like, or you know, didn't say that this was designed for apartheid South Africa's police uses, but it you know just happened to fit exactly what they needed. Um, so yeah, that, that's why there was this boycott campaign against uh, against Polaroid at the time. So yeah, these um, technical developments also have a, a political aspect to them that Simon Nolan doesn't really address, I think, but uh, that are also interesting to look at. That's interesting. It's a pretty egregious example. Um, yeah, the like literally a discrimination button on your camera. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, okay, so I think, yeah, we should, we're about at the two-hour mark, so we should stop here. Um, so this is a very long subsection. Yeah, it takes us all the way to 178, so we probably won't finish the subsection next time, but um, yeah, we'll continue um, from the bottom of 169 next time. Um, and uh, yeah, and then we will see how far we get. Uh, so yeah, I think, uh, yeah, next week uh, I should be, yeah, there's no obstacle for next week. So yeah, we should be back to our regular schedule. That sounds good. Um, talk to you about next week. Thanks, Don. Thanks, 61. Yeah, thanks both of you. Uh, see you next week.